Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, November 3rd, 2023. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. Tim McDonald from Semaphore will be joining us shortly. I'm joined once again by Clean Tech PR veteran Mike Casey of Tigercom. Mike, it's been a couple of weeks. How are you? I'm good, my friend. Tell me how the trade show was last week. The show was good. So Grid Tech Connect Forum Northeast was in Newport last week, and it was very well attended. And we we had a great time, man. It was it was really unique to see utilities, developers, and regulators actually engaging in a positive way around interconnection. And so that was refreshing. And we're excited to. It's not official yet, but I think the plan is to keep coming back to beautiful Newport year after year to host that Northeast uh, regional event. So it's exciting times. And we'll be in the Southeast in February. So check that out. And I, I am just let you know, I will accept your invitation to be the keynote speaker at next year's show. That's that's no problem, John. Just go ahead and extend that invitation to me when you're ready. I would love to, Mike. We'd, we'd be honored <laughs> to have you. You didn't attend in Newport last week. I didn't take it personally. I know you're busy, but a um, lot going on. Okay. So uh, we want to remind all of our listeners that you can nominate the stories that we feature each week by emailing us at thisweekincleantech at tigercom.us. And of course, as always, we'll have a link to that in the episode description as well. But before we start, Mike, we we teased this a couple of weeks ago. We're going to start honoring and recognizing a clean techer of the week. So the idea here is big and small accomplishments, your peers, nominate them and let us know who caught your eye, whether it was a big deal, financing agreement, um, workforce development, what have you. We want to feature those people in our sector on this show. So this week, this one comes from me. We're honoring Lauren Glickman and the Encore Renewables team, who earlier this week energized the new solar research and training facility at the University of Vermont alongside Senator Bernie Sanders. And you're seeing some of those photos now. Uh, the facility will provide students with hands-on learning opportunities and help build the pipeline of talent that the clean energy industry so desperately needs to continue growing. So congrats to the Encore team. Mike, I know you're very passionate about workforce development. So what do you think of that pick? Uh, I love Lauren Glickman. She and I go back a long way. And I'll just say is nicely done, Glickman. You deserve it. Yeah, agreed. Okay, get us started, Mike. Okay, our first story is from CNBC's Cat Clifford. Why some of the clean hydrogen hubs in the U.S. plan to use natural gas, a fossil fuel. What do you think, John? Yeah, so some quick background. We did talk about the hydrogen hubs on previous episodes, but the Department of Energy recently announced the winning applicants of a total $7 billion for several regional hydrogen hubs in the U.S. to push the development of clean hydrogen. Jennifer Granholm, the uh, energy secretary, is all in on hydrogen, calls it the Swiss army knife of zero carbon solutions. 
two of those hubs are going all in on renewables. The rest are mixing in nuclear and even natural gas with carbon capture. And factor this, listeners will remember my conversation on the topic with Jesse Jenkins from Princeton University back in September, where he cautioned about the ways we could go wrong with green or clean hydrogen subsidies going toward fossil fuels. Mike, what did you think? I think there are three pieces of bad news for the gas industry. The first is that First, not all hydrogen is created equal. Second, if we're going to use hydrogen to address the climate crisis, then we've got to produce it through renewables and not burning natural gas. And third, you got a lot of lobbying muscle, but it doesn't mean that propaganda can be equated to reality. So making sure these hydrogen hubs are legit and not greenwashing Mm -hmm. is a big deal. The good news is they're not going to get all the money up front. They have to prove themselves at every step because there's a tax credit at play. The 45V credit can be a game changer. It can really push companies to make hydrogen with less pollution. That's if we let we don't let the lobbyists eat through those standards like a swarm of termites. So the bottom line is now that we're investing in these hubs, we've got to ensure it's cleaner hydrogen backed by strong standards. John, story number a last, a last point on that. How much mansion influence was involved in the awards of those applications? That's what I want to know, because there are a lot of gas companies associated with this and just a, a fraction are going to, you know, totally green projects. So I think that's important to point out and maybe something we'll learn more about down the line. Okay, uh, story number two. This one's written by Timothy Gardner from Reuters titled, U.S. commits $1.3 billion for power lines in the West and Northeast. Mike, what'd you think? Transmission is one of the nine barriers to the clean energy transition, and we're talking about a significant move by the Biden administration. It's committing to $1.3 billion to support new power lines, three of them, that will run across six states in the West and the Northeast. You mentioned Jesse Jenkins, whose team at the Princeton Repeat Project reported that if the U.S. doesn't build new transmission capacity faster than than the recent snail crawl that we've got, we're going to lose 80% of the pollution reduction potential enabled by the IRA, we, we, we would actually end up needing um, to meet extra energy demand by burning more coal. So there's a lot at stake here. Um, this money is not, it, it isn't going directly to construction. The DOE is actually going to offer capacity contracts that allows them to purchase the power lines capacity for roughly 40 years and sell it later for their money back. John, what do you think? Yeah, you covered a lot of the big pieces, so I'll be quick. This is a really big deal. And the federal government investing in the grid in the way that they have over these past two weeks is an, is another big deal. It shows that people are recognizing that our transmission capacity across the country is woefully inadequate. Um, some believe we need to quadruple the grid. Others say double. Whatever it is, we need a lot more capacity. And this announcement comes just, I think, a week after the federal government announced $4 billion for grid projects across the country, and pretty much every utility of significance got to send out the press release cheering that money and, and the uh, resiliency effect that it would bring. So I think this is really good news, but we need more. Mike, third story. Story three is from e News' Benjamin Storo. Orsted cancels New Jersey project, a major blow to offshore wind. John, what do you think? Yeah, so Orsted is canceling the massive ocean wind project meant to power 1 million homes, citing inflation, rising interest rates, and supply chain problems. It's a pretty big setback, one of many we've talked about on this show over the last couple of months for the U.S. offshore wind industry, although it might not be catastrophic. I think it's it's important to talk about these headwinds. 
but also the economics just don't line up. So do we expect Orsted to build a, a multi-billion dollar project and, and lose money? No, we don't. The circumstances changed. They'll rebid. They'll be back. They said they want to stick in the U.S. market. So I think it'll be okay. But, you know, wind is going through a really tough time right now, whether it's the economics or OEMs having, you know, turbines that are failing or catching on fire. It's a problem. Yeah, we've done a lot of work in the offshore wind space. And I got to say, watching the troubles in the market right now is it's very painful to to watch here. I think, as you noted, the good news is they're not giving up. And I think we want to see more of these tax credits down the road. Um, is there going to be some tax uh, tax credit guidance that's changed? like to see it, but I think the, the, the good news is that offshore wind at scale works. We know that from the Northern European uh, experience, and I think that's really the important thing to keep in mind. John, what's our fourth story? Story four comes, comes from the AP's Hannah Schoenbaum, titled Toyota More Than Doubles Investment in Job Creation at North Carolina Battery Plant. Mike, what'd you take away? Uh, big, huge advancement in terms of EV production. They're going to put $8 billion into this factory in North Carolina. It's more than doubling their previous investment. And you're talking 5,000 jobs created when the plant starts and operations in 2025. Um, their goal is to sell between one and a half and 1.8 a million electric v- or hybrid vehicles. And I'll just say, um, hat tip off to Dan Garino at Inside Climate News. He's got a really interesting piece uh, where he talked to several EV insiders about where the market is going. And Toyota's role, I think, in this is also interesting because their CEO has been pretty uh, vocal about the need for hybrids, not just 100% EVs. John, what do you think about this one? Well, first takeaway, Dan is one of the best on the ground reporters that we have in climate and clean energy. So we need to get him on this show. He does some fantastic stuff, especially around community opposition, which I know, Mike, you are obsessed with. Um, so we'll get Dan eventually. <laughs> but the, the Toyota takeaway for me is, is finally they're getting it. You know, the hydrogen play for them was the big thing 10 years ago. They, they wasted a lot of money on that push. I think they're recognizing that. They need to catch up to other other automakers in this EV transition. It's not a fad. It's not a, a choice on technology anymore. We know what won, and so they need to get behind this. And it's obviously a job story too, but I think this is more telling ab- about Toyota's strategy and their recognition that you know we're off and running by this point. All right, Mike, what's our last one? This brings us to our last story, number five. It's a semaphore story written by Tim McDonald, who's um, coming to us from Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, it's, the story is called The Referendum on Biden's Climate Agenda is Coming, and Tim is going to join us now. Hey, Tim. Hey. Hello. Hi. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm sitting in one of the states that you uh, reported on, and I, I know from having run an $8 million independent expenditure back in the teens that this state is it's off your elections can be the hinge on national political directions. But tell us about the big takeaway you think people should have from your, your story. Uh, yeah. So next week on, uh, on Tuesday, we have um, off cycle elections in um, a few States, uh, including some, some legislative elections and also some States that where there's some big ballot measures up for a vote um, that that are related to climate and energy. And uh, so, you know, this this piece was kind of highlighting some of those um, 
those votes where there's a lot of climate and energy uh, kind of issues at stake. And I, I think what we are going to get next Tuesday when we see the outcome of, of some of these is a little bit of a preview of um, what's ahead next year in the general election in terms of uh, how important are climate and energy issues in the minds of voters? Where are they kind of leaning on, on these issues? Um, you know, what's the extent to which the Inflation Reduction Act, which, you know, for, for us uh, speaking on this on this pod and, you know, people listening is, you know, very front of mind. But I think for many American voters is still maybe a little bit mysterious. I think that there's a lot of polling to suggest that people are not totally um, aware of all the benefits there and, and kind of connecting all the dots there. So the, the, the votes um, in, in Virginia and Pennsylvania and Texas, Maine, some other places um, that we're going to see on Tuesday, we'll, we'll get a little bit of a preview of uh, where some of those issues are going and, and are also um, important for, for climate and emissions in, in their own right too, because there's a lot of sort of policy on the line, depending on um, how how some of these votes go, and I can talk about uh, more details. There. Yeah, Tim, looking forward to hearing more about that. My my biggest interest in these these elections is how do we parse the impact of Bidenomics and the Inflation Reduction Act and all these these monumental climate moves from um, you know Israel Gaza, Ukraine Russia, inflation, like the red meat stuff. I. I the, uh, skeptic in me worries that Bidenomics and running on something that is so important could be to the detriment of a, a national campaign like that when, you know, some families are struggling. And we know that there are more front and center um, conflicts at play than than climate, which can feel like a distant problem. How do we separate all that? And And maybe that's more of a question for the Biden administration, but curious your thoughts there. You're, you're absolutely right that, um, there's a lot of issues at play. I mean, you mentioned a few, um, there's also abortion, gun rights, healthcare, you know, education, totally. inflation. I mean, yeah, people, you, you know, the list. Um, so, you know, where does kind of climate fit in there? Of course, it's a little bit hard to parse. I think that's, it's one reason why it's interesting to look to a state like Texas, for example, where, um, it's not a legislative, uh, election, but they're voting on a ballot measure, Prop 7 uh, in Texas, which is a measure to um, offer uh, five to seven-ish billion dollars in low-cost loans from taxpayers to energy companies to build new natural gas-fired power plants in the state. Um, It's kind of a controversial measure. Not totally clear that that's the solution to Texas's energy reliability crisis. Um, and we can talk more about that, but that's one where there's a sort of, um, you know, clear, uh, kind of, you know, pro emission, you know, emissions increase or, or kind of, you know, clean energy, uh, choice for, for voters to make. So that, that one will be very interesting and, uh, something similar happening in Maine also with, uh, uh, making a new uh, municipal power utility there. So, so there, there are some that are, that are interesting to see. And, you know, and I, I think, you know, we'll just have to see what happens in, in Virginia, for example. And, um, you know, if, uh, if, if Republicans, uh, if Republicans do succeed in, in Virginia in taking um, both houses of the legislature, which is possible, it seems very uh, hot, kind of hot contest um, there. And then Governor Glenn Youngkin is able to proceed with rolling back some of the climate policies uh, in the state that he's talked about doing. Um, you know, what, what's the 
there'll be this sort of period of another year after that before the general election to see what, you know, how do people feel about that? Does that get a lot of blowback or is that something that people are okay with? Or we we get a kind of chance to to see how that goes before the next uh, big election comes through. So, well, uh, Tim, thanks for joining us. We are running out of time here and I want to thank you for joining us and thank our wonderful producer, Brian Mendez, and also Alex Peterson and Claire Quirin for gathering our stories this week. Yeah, thanks a bunch, Tim. And you can read each of those stories by clicking the links in the episode description. Please make sure you subscribe and give us feedback and share those recommendations for both our stories and Clean Tecker of the Week. Reach out to Mike or myself for that. And uh, make sure you check out Monday's episode of Factor This. So we're talking about AI and clean energy and the company that thinks you should be able to talk to and with your battery and solar projects. You want to check that one out. We'll see you next time. Good to see you, Mike. You too, sir. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Thank you. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.